can remember the first time, it was in middle school, that I looked at a map of the world and I realized there were two countries on the other half of the, of the globe called Iraq and Iran. I mean, I was like in the seventh grade and we were doing a geography section. And I looked at that and I thought, man, that is just crazy. There's a country called Iraq and there's a country called Iran. They're right next to each other. Uh, and by the way, when you're in that side of the world, they pronounce it Iraq and Iran. But the English is Iraq and Iran or Iran. Uh, run, ran, run, or whatever it was, you know, Sally. Ran, walked, whatever. But uh, yeah, it just kind of blew my mind, never knowing as a middle school kid that those two countries would become uh, very important in modern American history as, at some level, mortal enemies to our country, and not knowing that, especially Iraq, but Iran as well, uh, play a very pivotal part in biblical history for Iraq. That's where Abraham lived in Ur of the Chaldees when he was called to go to Canaan. And it's where the wise men came from. They came from Iraq. So we're going to focus on the three guys on the camels. And Derek, we don't know if there were three, and we don't know if they were on camels. But we do know they were aristocrats who were not pagan astrologers, but who were Gentile believers in the Messiah. And we're going to talk about what Matthew reveals about their visit to the baby Jesus. But uh, first, let's pray for teachability to God's Word, and certainly for our peace officers, firefighters, and our active military all over the globe. And um, Jeff uh, Skinner, would you lead us in prayer in that direction, please? Thank you, Jeff. Um, today's top five list is brought to you by our newest uh, TBF college graduate, Angie Miller, who graduated from UCO last Saturday. And we're very, very proud of her. Uh, but the top five list is top five things overheard at Wassell Night 2014. There were hundreds of things overheard, but I'm not going to waste your valuable time on all of them. After seeing the synchronized swimming skit, I now understand why Andrew Bowers is a world-class swimming coach, because he organized that skit. Wassel is, a, is actually two versions of this one. Wassel is a hot drink? I thought it was something that Chris Love used to groom his beard. <laughs> and that actually went over better than I thought it would have, because uh, we have a second version. Wassel is a hot drink? I thought it was something Ron Miller used to wax his head. <laughs> what an amazing coincidence. 14 years ago at Wassel Night, am I right, Jeff? Jeff asked Sonia to marry him. 
This year at Walsall Night, Jeff asked Sonia to get him a second piece of pie. <laughs> so you get engaged and married and you have commitments to one another. Solomon Moore has such poise and intelligence, he might become the president someday. Whoops, you know, that's a mistake. That's one of the top five things overheard at last Sunday's children's Christmas musical. So, sorry about that. And then uh, the number one thing overheard at Wassel Night, unfortunately, 2014. I wonder if Brad and or Riley would try to explain their skit to us. <laughs> now, uh, let me explain that a little bit. Yeah, uh, Riley and I performed, um, after hours of preparation and intense focus, we uh, uh, performed the, the skit called The Letter. And uh, as FDR said the day after Pearl Harbor, it was a skit that will live in infamy. Uh, I want to sincerely apologize for the fact that essentially nobody understood the joke. And I'm sure that was because of our delivery. Uh, but let me explain the joke to you, okay? We've got, uh, Riley was playing the role of a hardened con convict, and I was playing the role of a harder convict, and we were just a new uh, inmates in this prison, and we were only given an hour of exercise every, every day on the exercise yard, but we're not really supposed to talk to each other. So we're walking back and forth, just whispering a few things, and so I ask him, how long are you in for? And he comes back and forth, and he says, 10 years. So he's going to be in prison 10 years. You got to get that number straight. Then uh, we kept walking back and forth, and he says, How long are you in for? To me, and I said, 30 years. Now, the key to this is 30 is like 20 bigger than 10. That's a big, important part of this joke. <laughs> and, uh, and so then uh, we walked back and forth, and I, because the guards are watching, we're not supposed to be talking, and I said, uh, Will you do me a favor? And he said, Anything. And then I pulled out under my sweater a letter. I handed it to him and I said, mail this for me. That was the punchline. Now, I went over about like that uh, last week. <laughs> and the idea was you have to, you know, kind of suspension of disbelief. I know nowadays the prisoners run the prisons and they can do whatever they want to, including mail letters. But in theory, the idea was, conceptually, was I'm going to be in for 30 years, so I won't be able to mail my letter for 30 years. This young guy is only going to be in for 10 He'll be able to mail it in 20 years sooner. So that was the idea behind that. Now here's my, yeah. It is lame, I know. But, um, yeah. But my pledge is, I make a solemn pledge. If I'm still here next uh, Wassel Night, and if Riley's still here and hadn't gotten mad at me and left the church, uh, we will come up with a bigger, better skit that you people can actually understand. So that, that is... That's what we're going to do. So that's the plan. So yeah, I feel better now. I, I love this passage, and we, we tend to look at Luke 2 or Matthew 2 for obvious reasons this time of year. But let's look at a familiar passage and maybe see some things we haven't seen before. Uh, Twelve verses break down into three parts. First, we're going to see godly wise men from Babylon, which today is called Iraq or Iraq. Come to Jerusalem, the capital of Israel, to worship the king of the Jews, the newborn king of the Jews. That's verses 1 through 4. Then verses 5 and 6, ungodly wise men from Jerusalem, Jewish religious leaders, quote Bible prophecy, but have no desire themselves to go to Bethlehem to worship the king of the Jews. That's verses 5 and 6. And then verse 7 through 12, 
the godly wise men from the first part of the passage uh, follow a star to Bethlehem to find the king of the Jews. Okay? So let's read verses 1 through 4. I'm reading from New American Standard Bible. Godly wise men from Babylon come to Jerusalem to worship the king of the Jews. Now after, that's really an important word. Prepositions are really important in Bible study. After Jesus was born, the wise men never saw the shepherds because this is 12 to 18 months later after the stable experience, the actual birth. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the Great, Magi from the east, that's shorthand for from Iraq, from Babylon, arrived in Jerusalem, the capital city, which is obviously where the king's going to be, right? If you're looking for the president today, you're going to go to Washington, D.C., even though he's in Hawaii right now looking for his birth certificate. But that's a whole different thing, <laughs> right? Let me. I'm going out of town for 10 days. You'll get over it, <laughs> I hope, and that won't help. Arrived in Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born? He was born 12 months ago, king of the Jews. For, and not who's going to become, but he is by virtue of his person. He is the king of the Jews. For we saw his astere, something bright in the sky is what that means. Not necessarily uh, a star the way we use the term today, a, you know, a ball of uh, what uh, uh, fusion reaction going on there like the sun to produce energy and, and stuff like that. We saw his star when we were in the east in Babylon and have come to worship him. When Herod the king, who really was kind of a hybrid, he was uh, uh, an Idumean, uh, Edomite as far as his, uh, his uh, ethnicity, uh, descendant of Esau, kind of half Jew, kind of hated by the Jews, but he had kind of worked uh, his political and his power such that political clout and his power to kind of be the regional governor under the Romans. But he, he claimed, he, it's kind of like honorary degrees in the absence of earned ones are always greatly appreciated. Uh, Herod really wasn't the king from the Roman point of view. He was really the governor, but he just coined that term for himself. So when, when he hears the Magi looking for the king of the Jews, he takes that very personally. He would have anyway, because he kind of has usurped that title, even though he's not really the king, he's just the local governor. Um, so when Herod the king... The Roman governor heard that heard this that they're looking for the real king of the Jews. He was troubled, and all D.C. was too. All the leaders of Jerusalem were upset because they've got a good thing going with the status quo. They're getting rich, and they don't want anything to change. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, the Sanhedrin who advised him, who were just as corrupt as he was, really, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. Again, look at verse 1. This is the aftermath, Blake, of the birth of Christ. The, the night of the birth, the shepherds come, the angels sing, but this is like a year later. Uh, the scholars all say a year to 18 months later. So this is after the birth of Jesus. Born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem means house of bread, which is a pretty good, good place for the, the bread of life to be born. So that's not a mistake either of Judea. Uh, there's actually a Bethlehem of Zebulun in Galilee, so he's making sure you understand which Bethlehem it is. There's at least two Paris's. There's one Paris in France, there's one Paris in Texas. So, you know, if, if you're talking about the Paris in Texas, you better make sure people understand it's Paris, Texas, because they're going to probably default to France. Magi. Now, Magi, we get the English word magician from this, and almost everybody says these are pagan astro astrologers. 
But I have a real problem with that. Pagan astrologers, Ron, are not going to go 800 miles to give very valuable um, uh, gifts to a little Jewish baby and to worship the little Jewish baby. They're coming to worship, right? So these aren't astrologers. These are Babylonian Gentile guys who had some of the Old Testament because Daniel had been there and the whole nation had been deported there centuries before and they left a sizable a Jewish contingent even at that point in the first century. So I'm convinced you're going to see these guys in heaven. They're Old Testament believers. They believed in the promises of the Messiah and they also now believe the Messiah has arrived and they want to worship Him. So they say they go to Jerusalem because they don't know about Micah 5.2 and the prophecy about Messiah being born out of town six miles south of Jerusalem. They just go to the capital city thinking He's got to be there. That's a good place to start anyway. And they say, where is He? who's been born king of the Jews. And I've talked about the importance of that title, especially in Herod's situation. Now, uh, yeah, these guys would have come from, uh, Babylon is on the Euphrates River, you know, the Mesopotamia is the land between the rivers. You got the Euphrates and the Tigris and basically Babylon's about there, more or less. And so this is kind of a schematic, but they, here's the rivers and Babylon's about there. You can't go straight because all that's desert and it's too long to cover back in those days on a camel or a horse or a wagon, whatever they're riding in. So they went around. Now if they'd gone across this way, they probably would have taken camels, but they probably would have all died, so you wouldn't have heard about them. But they went around these river valleys, and there's a valley here, down here, and boom. So people always come to Jerusalem from the north because you can't, really, unless you're in Egypt, uh, you can't really get there from the west based on ancient transportation techniques. Now you guys know that Mary and Joseph were from Nazareth, but uh, based on a Roman regional tax census, they had to travel to Bethlehem. And we were just talking about this. You know, the, the scripture doesn't go into any detail, but uh, when you're uh, Aubrey, uh, can you imagine being basically eight and a half months pregnant and having to either walk, hopefully she didn't walk, we don't know, ride on the back of a horse, ride in a wagon, or some kind of pretty uh, rickety uh, method to get there. So, I mean, God was going to have the Messiah. The plan of God was going to make the Messiah be physically born in Bethlehem, but they had to do the work to get there. So, don't let the fact of the sovereignty of God to, uh, take away your responsibility to do the right things. So, they hit the capital city, which means whatever the star was and however it worked, it did not lead them directly from Babylon to Bethlehem, did it? Because they go to Jerusalem. So I'm, my take is that star appeared. They knew enough about the way the sky should look. It appeared when they were in Babylon. It didn't fit their charts. And that gave them an indication the Messiah had been born. They went to the capital city. The star is not there anymore. It's not guiding them anymore. But once they head in a few verses to Bethlehem, which is six miles downhill all the way on the main road, so you can't miss it anyway, the star reappears, whatever it is, taking them to the house, okay? It hovers over the house where Jesus is, okay? This is kind of a preview. Uh, now, look here. He goes um, in verse 2. Um, they come to Jerusalem, work their way up the chain of command to get to Herod, and say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? They, they assume all the Jewish nation is excited about it, and most of them are oblivious, and certainly these power brokers don't care and don't want it. 
Uh, for we saw his astere, something bright in the sky when we were in the east, and we've come to worship him. So not pagan astrologers. When Herod and the, ki- the king heard this, he was troubled, and all of the big shots in Jerusalem as well. Uh, the star of Bethlehem, what, what was it? I think there are a couple of possibilities. And uh, I must have been wrong about it at least once because I've kind of come to a new uh, conclusion this week. So... But, uh, you know, a lot of people want to make it unique but natural, and I appreciate that. There were, when you, when you go to the uh, uh, planetarium and they're able to run the, what the scars would have looked like and their natural functions, you know, whatever date you want, depending on when you date the birth, and people date at various dates, but I think uh, probably uh, late 6 or early 5 B.C., I know that sounds weird, but trust me, the, the calendar is wrong, it's not, the Bible's wrong. Uh, it's probably the best guess, but everybody wants it to be a supernova, and there was a supernova in like the fourth century BC. They want it to be a conjunction of Saturn and Venus, which happened in one BC, which is too late. But there are a lot of interesting things that happen only rarely in that time window. So it could have been some kind of a, you know, a comet or a supernova or a bunch of planets kind of lining up from our perspective, kind of parallax kind of thing. So that's possible, but I don't buy that based on the characteristics of the star as we read about it. Uh, it could have been something unique and supernatural. That was kind of my assumption until recently, like Tuesday. <laughs> uh, I just have kind of always assumed it was a point of light, because that's what astere, the, the word that's translated star, means just a point of light. I just kind of assumed it was kind of like the pillar of fire that led Israel in the wilderness during, during the uh, nighttime hours, there's a pillar of cloud during the day, a pillar of, uh, of fire at night. Obviously a supernatural phenomenon. It led them in the wilderness. I think I would just assume that's kind of what it was, and that made sense to me. Uh, but, you know, I was, I was reading uh, Morris's commentary on Matthew, and he pointed out the many times Scripture refers to angels or an angel as a star, as an astare. And you look at that, and you've got passages like uh, uh, Job 38, 7, on the morning stars, uh, praise God when he kind of recreated the earth to prepare it for us. Daniel 8 uses the term for angels, Revelation 9. And then the one that really got my attention, which I would not noticed before, was in Exodus 14, 19, and 23, 20, two different times it talks about the, uh, the cloud, the pillar of cloud, that led Israel during the wilderness is directly associated with an angel. And by implication, I would take it if the cloud was associated with an angel, angelic activity, the pillar of fire would have been two. So I'm just going to say, in my opinion, and I could be wrong, I think the, the star of Bethlehem was some kind of angelic appearance as a bright light source that the, uh, the, the Magi saw. And maybe they're the only ones who saw it, but I don't know that. Uh, there's actually a fourth view. View one, something unique but natural, a conjunction of planets or a, a comet or a supernova, and there were several of those in that time window. could have been something unique and supernatural, just strictly a non-personal pillar of fire kind of thing or a manifestation of God's Shekinah glory in a point, act, point spot in space to get their attention, and then from Jerusalem to Bethlehem to lead them to the house. An angelic manifestation, that's where I am today. It could change again. Or something else. Now, this is a, this is a cutting-edge theory. You ready for this, Carol? Uh, 
uh, the star of Bethlehem could have been the three wise men found the baby Jesus by following the star of Bethlehem. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't think you want to go with that view, but that's, you know, I'm, I'm just telling you all the possibilities. So, we leave no stone unturned here, right? Now, watch this. Um, they're looking for the king of the Jews. That's the label the Magi are using for Jesus. Uh, but in verse 4, Herod is all upset because he doesn't want... Herod uh, is known for two things, Ashley. He was a builder and he was a bully. This guy was psychotic. He had 10 different wives, several at the same time, had lots of kids. He killed at least one of his wives and two of his sons that he thought were uh, dangerous to his power base. Killed a lot of people indiscriminately. This guy was a cold-blooded murderer. He was a bully. But also to placate the Jewish power sources, he did a lot of building, including expanding the temple platform to what you see today when you go to Jerusalem and renovating it tremendously, not because he had any religious interest, but just to make points uh, with the Jewish leaders, and it, it, it made points in spades, you know. And then it's, so it's ironic, you know, Matthew 24, where the disciples are saying, Lord, 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 look at all these beautiful buildings. Isn't this incredible? You know, we're going to be taking this thing over next week, right? And he says, you know, it's all coming down, man. This isn't, this isn't what we're going to be doing, you know. We're not going to take over the government this week. But notice in verse 4, uh, Herod knows there's some place in the Old Testament, in the Bible, Hebrew Bible, that says where the Messiah is going to be born. So he gets the chief priests and the scribes. The chief priests were, were uh, Sadducees. You know, there were several different Jewish sects. Don't get too excited. S-E-C-T-S, okay? Just wanted to make sure you in the back didn't get too excited about that word. But, uh, yeah, you've got the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, Dead Sea Scroll people, and the Zealots who were violently wanting to oppose Roman authority. I always like to say the two main ones that had some power were the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Pharisees were powerful because they had the largest total number of members, about 7,000, and they were the most popular with the average person. The Sadducees were most powerful because they had a lock on the chief priesthood and the Sanhedrin, kind of the Jewish ruling body, which was religious and civil, and the Sadducees controlled that. Um, the Pharisees were just were very conservative but hyper-legalistic, clearly believing in salvation by good works. That's a problem. The Sadducees were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in life after death. They only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament of Scripture. They were kind of theologically liberals. They were kind of Cadillac liberals. But when um, Herod calls the leading lights from the Sanhedrin, which would have been mainly Sadducees, the chief priests exclusively, and those associated with his office. The scribes, when you think of a scribe, what do you think of? Somebody who copies the text, right? And that's what they did initially, but that became a fixed term for people who kind of start as apprentice copying the Old Testament manuscripts, but who were later seen as experts in the interpretation of the manuscripts. They tended to be Pharisees because the uh, Sadducees weren't that interested in any book after Deuteronomy, because they only believed the first five books and didn't believe in life after death. So anyway, he gets his kind of um, uh, most famous, uh, in theory, uh, highly connected religious leaders to come in and tell him where in the Old Testament it said where the Messiah is going to be born. And I want you to notice that the Magi refer to the baby as the king of the Jews, but when Herod goes to the religious leaders, he uses the religious term, Messiah, 
And Messiah, as you know, is not Jesus' last name. It's, it's a title. Uh, Messiah is the Hebrew word, uh, Yeshua, Jesus, Hamashiach. It means Jesus the Messiah. That's, that's Hebrew. Uh, when we translate uh, Mashiach into Greek, it becomes that form. And from that form, and that X is a CH, it's a key, uh, it becomes Christ. So Christ is a title that means Messiah, and Messiah goes back to Psalm 2. In Psalm 110, it refers to the anointed one, the member of the Godhead appointed to be the uh, uh, functional um, person who's going to provide salvation. God the Father is the author of salvation. God the Son, Jesus, is the active agent of salvation. He dies for our sins and rises again. God the Holy Spirit is the activating agent. So when he says, I want you to tell me where in the Old Testament says the Messiah is going to be born, he's using that term, Mashiach. The Savior is going to take care of the sin issue. Now you guys know the Bible is a big book, but it only has two parts. First part of the Bible is called the Old Testament. Second part of the Bible is called the New Testament. The Old Testament books were all written before the first advent of Christ. The Old Testament has one major premise. All humans are sinners because we break God's standards and our own at our worst, and we all die. It's appointed unto man once to die. And after that, a reckoning with God, right? So that's the major premise of the book, and all these people die. Now, I know Elijah and Enoch didn't, but those were the two outstanding exceptions. Everybody else, you know, death rate's 100%, right? So all human beings are sinners and we die, but the promise is the Savior's coming. And so the Magi have that information, and whatever the angel told them, who I think is the star, and they're like coming to Jerusalem to find him, and uh, these guys know that Micah 5.2 tells you exactly where he's going to be born. We'll see that in a minute. Now let's look at the New Testament side of the Bible. New Testament side of the Bible, those books are written in the decades immediately after the Christ event, after his life, perfectly righteous, his substitutionary atoning sacrifice, and his little resurrection. And the one major premise of the New Testament isn't that we're all sinners and we're, gonna, we're, and we're mortal, it's that Jesus Christ is the Savior. He died but he rose again, and he died for us, and he died before us, and he came out the other side of death. So we know death is not the end. It's just the beginning of something much better. And the one major promise is what? What's the outstanding promise of the New Testament? Jesus is coming back. So look busy, okay? That's, that's the old joke, right? Uh, but yeah, the Savior who came as a lamb in his first advent is going to come how? As a lion in the second advent. Now, here's the thing. The Old Testament prophets, as they talk about the Messiah, it's almost like they're standing on a platform looking at two mountain peaks. And they sometimes, you know, if you've got two mountain peaks that are actually separated by, by some distance, but depending on your perspective, they might look to you like they're right next to each other, except the, one, the further one's going to look smaller than it really is in proportion, if you understand what I mean. But it's almost like they're looking at two mountain peaks and there's a valley between those peaks that the Old Testament prophets don't see. What is that? The church, which Paul says is a mystery, not something mysterious, but something previously unrevealed in the Old Testament. And when you get that, you can understand there are two distinct strains of prophecy in the Old Testament about the Messiah. The first deals with the cross, Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, right? He's going to be slain for our transgressions, the suffering Messiah. 
The second mountaintop separated by the church age is nothing about the cross. It's about the crown. It's about the sovereign Messiah, not a lamb, but a lion, right? So they're interacting with this, and I want you to notice when he asked them this question, and by the way, let me say one more thing before we go to verses 5 and 6. Good, good works like their desire to worship and to give him very expensive gifts, the Magi, is the fruit, not the root of salvation. But I just can't buy these are Babylonian pagan astrologers wanting to give huge amounts of money to the newborn Jewish baby king only because they do that only because they know he's the Jewish Messiah who's the Savior of the world. So that's important. Look at verses 5 and 6. So we go from a godly but Gentile wise men looking for Jesus, now verses 5 and 6, ungodly wise men, Sanhedrin members, religious people, preachers you'd say, can quote Bible prophecy, and they know the exact verse in Hebrew, but they have no desire to go check it out. It's crazy. You couldn't make this up. Look at verses 5 and 6. So they, they're asked the question, where does it say in the Bible, Blake, uh, the Messiah is going to be born? Where does it say he's going to be born? And they said to him, hey, we know that. It's Michael 5 too. He's going to be born in Bethlehem of Judea, just six miles from here, downhill all the way. For this is what's been written by the prophet Micah in Micah 5, 2, as, and you, Bethlehem, land, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, even though you're small and seemingly indistinguished, undistinguished. David was born there a thousand years before, and the Messiah is going to be born there when he comes. For out of you shall come a ruler, and this is after David, Micah's writing is he's not talking about David who will shepherd ultimately my people Israel. Now, uh, a lot of people point out how ironic it is that these guys knew exactly the correct answer, but they had no heart desire to go find out where the Messiah was, whereas these Gentiles are wanting and spending a lot of time and money to find him as a, in baby form. So it's not enough to have information about the Bible, even in Hebrew, right? The Gentile Magi willingly went 800-plus miles to find baby Jesus. The Jewish religious leaders wouldn't go six, which is quite amazing. So I would say beware of organized religious bureaucracies. One of the beautiful things about Tanglewood, we're not that organized. So, so maybe we can uh, dodge that bullet. When you look at the Old Testament texts about who the Messiah was going to be, they get increasingly more specific in Genesis 3, we're told it's going to be a human being, not an alien or an angel. It's going to be born of a woman and a male. So that kind of narrows it down when you're starting from, from anybody. Uh, going to be a, a descendant of Shem, a Semite. Going to be a Jewish male through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the 12. Ultimately, one tribe. What tribe is the Messiah going to come from? Genesis 49. Yeah, Judah. One family in that one tribe. David through Solomon born of a virgin. That really narrows it down. So you have quite a bit of data, and how much of that the Magi had accessed, I'm not sure, but they've got enough to know uh, they're looking for the right person. If you flush it out and go from just that uh, arrow down from the who, you also have the where. They've decided that. When, Daniel actually gives a time frame for the advent of the Messiah, what he's going to do and why he's going to do it. And there's only one person that fulfills that. So the Magi know quite a lot. And the professional religious people know the verses. They've got the systematic theology down. But they don't have a heart to actually find out what's going on. Now, he's called king of the Jews here. 
by the way, we don't know if the Magi were kings, okay? That's a, a tradition that started like in the second century in the church. They assumed that they were kings because there are several Old Testament prophecies about kings bowing down to the Messiah. So they kind of plugged that in there. But I don't think these guys were necessarily kings. I think they were high, highly um, stated or highly placed uh, Babylonian aristocrats who uh, knew a lot about natural science and also on their own personal time knew a lot about the Hebrew Scriptures, were believers in the promises of the Messiah, and that's why they're there. But they're not necessarily kings. We don't know there are three guys either. Does it say anywhere there are three of them? Now they bring gold, frankincense, and myrrh, three gifts, so it's assumed three guys. That's assuming just one guy per gift, but it doesn't say that. There could have been 13. Uh, we know there's at least two. How do we know that? Singular, plural, all right? We've got plural, magi. It's in the plural. But it could have been two. could have been 12. could have been 22. I don't think it was just three guys on three camels. I'm not sure they were even on camels. If they'd gone on camels, they would have gone tried to go straight through the desert. I think they went around the, the valleys. You don't necessarily need camels for that. So let me just warn you. Ashley, somebody should have told you this a long time ago. I think I did. Don't get your theology about Jesus from Christmas cards because sometimes it's wrong. Sometimes it's wrong. But talking about Jesus as the king of the Jews and ultimately king of the world, that's where the second line of biblical prophecy comes in. Let's look at some of these outstanding passages. Look at Isaiah chapter 2. If you don't have your Bible or, or can't flip that fast, I'm just going to go pretty quickly here. Just hold on. I'll try to read it slowly enough you can follow it. Isaiah 2, written about, again, 700 B.C., same time frame as Malachi, as it turns out. It will come about in the last days, not even during the first advent, but in connection with the second advent, that the mountain of the house of Yahweh, of the house of the Lord, will be established as chief of the mountains. That's a figurative way of saying his government will trump everybody else's government because mountains were often used as a figure for human governments. And it will be raised above the hills and all the other nations, there's the literal referent, will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. Uh, if you believe in a literal kingdom after the second advent, and I do for a thousand years, this is actually going to happen. And all of our loved ones who've gone before us are going to be part of that just as much as we are. Uh, we miss them. We've, we've uh, had some really... Uh, uh, traumatic events this past year for all of us, but there's, there's more to come, and it's going to get only better and much better. Many peoples will come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us directly, face-to-face uh, -face his ways, that we may walk in his paths, for the law will, the, the Torah, the scripture will go forth from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and he the Messiah, the king of the Jews, king of the world, will judge between the nations. He'll render decisions for many peoples, and they will hammer their swords into plowshares, taking military instruments and money into agricultural pursuits. Won't that be great when we don't need an army anymore? We're going to need an army until the second advent. We need the best army possible. We need the best police forces possible. And we need to blame criminals for crime and stop blaming police for crime, even though are there corrupt policemen? Yeah. Are there corrupt lawyers? Yeah. Are there correct po corrupt politicians? Yeah. Are there preachers that can't pronounce the word corrupt very well? Yes, there are. Thank you. He, the king of the Jews, uh, will judge between the nations. He'll be in charge. He'll render decisions. We won't have wars anymore. <laughs> nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn 
war because there'll be universal peace, but it's not, not here yet. Go ahead and jump to Luke 132. We'll use one New Testament passage, but I want to read you Isaiah 9, 6 and 7 while you're looking at or turning to Luke 1. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. That's first advent, that's Christmas. And second advent, in the last days, the government of the world will rest on his shoulders. Uh, There will be no end to the increase of his government or his peace. On the throne of David, he's got to be a Davidic descendant to pull this off. Herod doesn't qualify. And over his kingdom to establish it, hold it with justice and righteousness from then on forevermore. Then the Luke passage, Matthew, Mark, Luke. In fact, somebody else read that. Who's, uh, David's dribbling. You got Luke 1, uh, 30. That should be 32 and 33, I think. You got it? And that hasn't started yet. I mean, positionally, yes. Uh, the theocratic kingdom of, of God, Jesus rules over all of it, but physically, visibly, on the earth, undeniably, that hasn't happened yet, but it's prophesied in connection with the first Christmas. It's going to happen. Isaiah 11, amazing stuff here. The wolf, during the millennium, there's going to be a total radical change in the geophysical uh, biosphere of earth. The wolf will dwell with the lamb and not eat him up. And the leopard will lie down with the kid. That's what the King James says. And you go, oh, wow. Leopard's going to be lying down with little kids? That means uh, young goat. Right? So you've got to translate that right. And the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And a little boy will lead them. Now, I've been in churches where a little boy was the first one down the aisle. And then mom and dad came uh, to sign the card and stuff. And, and the preacher said, hey, a little boy will lead them. But this is talking about a little boy will lead formerly dangerous animals around. I'm not sure we're going to need veterinarians during the millennium. This, that's the bad news, but uh, uh, that's what that's talking about. Uh, the nursing child, the little baby, like Peter McCoy. Uh, Peter Grant McCoy, is that a great name? The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and it won't matter because the cobra won't bite you anymore. And the weaned child will put his hand in the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. Then, then, not now, but then, after the second advent, it will come about in that day that the nations will resort to the root of Jesse. That's a title for the Messiah, who will stand as a signal of his peoples, and his resting place, his throne, will be glorious. I guess so. Uh, let's look at a couple more. That's one more. Look at 66. You know, there are 66 books in the Bible. There are 66 chapters in Isaiah. And when you analyze the macro structure of Isaiah, it really lines up like a mini Bible. It really blows your mind. And you might say, well, the Christians changed it so it would look like that, right? No. We've got all 66 chapters of Isaiah in the Dead Sea Scrolls, carbon dated 200 B.C. The Christians didn't make it work out that way. It was like that when it was written which is pretty, pretty cool. 66, 10, and, and drop down to 12. During the millennium, be joyful with Jerusalem and rejoice for her, all you who love her. And I, I hope all of you love Jerusalem. I certainly do. Be exceedingly glad with her, 
all you who mourn over her, who have mourned over her. Uh, because guess what? It's, it's dangerous to be in Jerusalem right now. It has been for millennia. Verse 12, for thus says Yahweh, behold, I extend peace to her like a river and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. Now there's a, a chorus. I don't think we've sung it lately. I have peace like a river. I have peace like a river. They're ripping that out of context. It's a millennial context, okay? When you devotionalize millennial context, you end up in replacement theology, which is a very bad place to be. That's a message we'll do some other time, but not today. Let's go back to Matthew 2. <laughs> I mean, it's crazy. When you read this stuff in context, it just doesn't fit a lot of the choruses. It's crazy, you know? Uh, godly wise men from Babylon come to Jerusalem, the capital city, made sense to them. And so whatever the, the star was did not lead them to Jerusalem. It, 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 uh, the angel, I think, appeared as a light source and told the Messiah is here, go find him. They go to the capital and the, and the star goes away. We're not told the star led them to the Jerusalem because if it had led them, it would have led them to Bethlehem, you know, eliminate the middleman. So they come to Jerusalem. The ungodly Jewish Sanhedrin wise men quote Bible prophecy, but they don't have any desire to go check it out. And now these guys are sent by Herod. Let me know where you find him so I can worship him too, which is a lie. But they follow the star which reappears to find him. So look at verses 7 through 12. Then, now that he's been confronted by the wise men, the good wise men, and informed by the bad wise men, then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the angel, I mean the star, appeared. So he's trying to figure out when the baby was actually born. It was like a year before. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search carefully for the child. And when you found him, report back to me so I too may come and worship him. So are there lies in the Bible? Inerrantly recorded lies like that one, you know. Thou shall not surely die. That's the first major lie in the Bible. Go ahead, just disregard God's stuff. Just do whatever you want to. It doesn't matter. You won't die. They died spiritually as soon as they ate the fruit, and then they died physically later. And we're all doomed to that. That's why we need a resurrected Savior. So watch this, verse 9. And after hearing the king sending them to, you know, kind of authorizing them to go, none of the religious guys in Jerusalem want to go. They're too busy with their, you know, counting their money. Uh, they went their way, the Magi. And the Aster, which they had seen initially that got them going, but had not continued to lead them, uh, went on before them, appears and is now leading them. One reason this can't be a conjunction of Jupiter and Venus is you can't follow a, a conjunction of planets to a particular house. This is some moving point of light, I think an angel myself, that kind of is actually moving them um, the six miles downhill and then make a right at the second uh, street so you can go to the, the house where Jesus is now, the baby Jesus is now. So he gets there, uh, they get uh, Herod's approval with an agenda, and they take off, and the they star reappears, and boy, they're excited, aren't they? After hearing the king, they went, the star which they had seen reappears, uh, and they followed it until, they came, until it came and stood over the place where the child was. So I don't think a natural explanation is going to do that. This is a supernatural dynamic, is a supernatural light source. When, and by the way, he says, almost like a parenthesis, when they saw the star, which they hadn't seen for, for a while since they left town 800 miles away, they rejoiced exceedingly. Wow, God is in this. He's going to get us all the way across the goal line here. Verse 11, after coming into the house, you see that? 
Where did we see Jesus in Luke 2, the night of the birth? In a stable, right? In a manger, feeding trough. This is a year later. How'd they get a house? You can rent houses. You know, I, listen, what did Joseph do for a living? He's a carpenter, so he could have built them a house. Uh, they're from Nazareth, but the assumption, they must assume, they know Old Testament prophecy. They know the Messiah. Once they kind of connected to us, say, hey, you know what? Well, I hadn't thought about that, but yeah, he had to be born here. Wow. I think basically Joseph is waiting for further instructions. He's had plenty enough time to go back home, but he hasn't. He's just waiting there. Sometimes that's the way God's will for you is going to work. You're going to have periods where you don't have any direction to make, do anything different, so you just bloom where you're planted, okay? They're blooming where they planted. It made sense to them he had to be born here. Maybe he's supposed to grow up here. They didn't know. They had no direct revelation, so they're going to stay there. Now, God's going to get them into Egypt and then back to Nazareth, but right now they're just in a holding pattern, and God knows all about your holding patterns. Nothing's ever wasted. You go through seasons of life where nothing's happening. It's amazing. You know, the, the shepherds in the night of the birth, right before the angel announced the birth of the Messiah, one of the guys said, nothing exciting ever happens on this job. It's just all these dumb sheep all day long. And then boom! Oh, you know? So don't, um, don't despise small things or holding patterns. Just stay faithful. Just keep loving the Lord, loving your family, doing the right things. Bible study, fellowship, worship, pray, evangelism, world mission. Just keep doing what you're supposed to do. And then occasionally you have major breakthroughs and you know, whatever. Coca-Cola is going to call Ron and say, we need a CEO, and we know, heard about how well you run that T-shirt shop, and Duncan, we want you to run Coca-Cola for us, you know. Dallas Seminary is going to call somebody to be the next president. It won't be me, <laughs> but if it happened, I will take that call, okay? I'm just letting you know. But, um, yeah, so they're excited. They find the house because the light source, angelic in nature, in my opinion, takes them right there. And what do they do? They fell to the ground and proscunio Jesus, which is worship. These are not pagan astrologers. These are believing astronomers, government big shots, who financed their own personal trip to find the Jewish Messiah. And opening their treasures, they presented him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Uh, that gold, I'm sure, financed the trip to Egypt. Everybody calls it the flight to Egypt. And back then, getting a flight... Was a, was a pain. You had no internet. You had to go to the airport many hours early. It was very expensive to fly back there in the first century before the Wright brothers. Now, the flight into Egypt just meant they kind of fled into Egypt to get away from Herod. But that would have paid for that. Uh, frankincense and myrrh. Um, myrrh was used in embalming, and frankincense was a, an incense kind of a thing, sometimes uh, burned uh, in, in the process of embalming um, uh, dead bodies. So a lot of people have made a lot of typological um, hay on the fact you've got a couple of constituents that you use in, in burial. And I'm not sure if the wise men were thinking in those terms. I think these things were precious and expensive. But it is interesting to see that. And what I like when it talks about the baby Jesus in Luke was wrapped in swaddling clothes. King James, remember that? That just means in strips. And that wasn't necessarily the common way to, to dress babies back then, but it was the way they prepared dead bodies. And I think this, this couple that don't have room in the hotel, have to stay in the uh, stable, putting the baby Jesus not in a gold-encrusted bassinet, but in a feeding trough that they carefully cleaned out as best they could. All they've got is a couple of rags somewhere, and they're pulling off these strips and wrapping the baby up. 
And I think the symbolism of that is striking because he looks like a little dead corpse, you know, in that sense, because that's the way you uh, prepared uh, the body after death. And we see that certainly in the life of Jesus. So he's born to die as Messiah, but I'm not sure the, uh, the wise men were bringing frankincense and myrrh to focus on that. But if they were, that's fine. Now, here's the thing. These guys are believers, okay? So, Dr. Deeg, you will meet the Magi in heaven. So you can ask them, what was the star, you know? Uh, what was the deal with the gold, frankincense, and myrrh? Were there three of you or 33 of you, you know? Were you, did you ride a camel? We didn't ride a camel. What were you, it, it, trust me. When you ask Belspar, did you ride a camel? He, that's Jewish tradition, says his Belspar. Uh, when you ask Belspar, you know, did you ride a camel, he's going to say, did you get your theology off Christmas cards? No, you know, we didn't ride a camel. We went around the desert, you know, in the river valleys. We were on horses, man. Lexus chariots kind of thing, probably, right? Then, watch this. So, th- verse 11 probably takes several days. I don't think they, they spent five minutes and left. They probably spent several days, and Mary and Joseph are now connecting even more dots. And then after some kind of indeterminate length of time, several days, maybe a week or two, having been warned by God in a dream, the Magi, not to return to Herod like he said, come back and tell me where he is. Now, why didn't he just text them? You know, fortunately, they didn't have that technology back then. Um, The star reappears. It didn't lead them to Bethlehem until after it reappears in verse 9. Talking about the three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and the one, and they're, they're, you know, they're lost, you know, they're not sure where they're going, hypothetically. Uh, and the guy says, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and you couldn't spring for a GPS? You know, so there's, there's that. Yeah, now this was the trip to, the trip back, notice it says, having been warned by God in a dream not to go back to Herod and report like he said to, the Magi left for their own country in another way. Now, the only way you can get there is that way. So probably they either went, along the coast, which would have been hard to escape detection, or more likely on the other side of the Jordan that way. But sooner or later, they got back on this route, because that's the way to go on the river valleys. You, you can't go that way at all. So something like that probably happened, and you can ask them if you want more details later, right? All right, let's uh, take this to heart. Ancient Iraqis visit the baby Jesus. And this is 12 or 18 months after the shepherds did on the birth, uh, not of the birth. And here's the thing. The Jewish Messiah is the Savior of the world. And you see this in the most Jewish of the Gospels. Everybody says Matthew is the most Jewish of the four Gospels. But the first individuals to worship Jesus in the most Jewish of the Gospels is who? Gentiles from Iraq. Okay? So Gentile salvation has always been part of the plan. And salvation by works was never part of the plan. In the Old Testament, those who believed in the promised Messiah were justified. In the New Testament, those who believe in the provided Messiah are justified. I like what Paul says in Romans, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who what? Believes. To the Jew first, in the logical order, Jesus in in John 4 says, Katie, salvation is of the Jews. What does that mean? You got to be a Jew to be saved? No. You're going to be saved by the Old Testament law? No. Salvation is of the Jews because the, the Savior is Jewish. Okay? How in the world can some of these uh, uh, modern Christian brainiacs uh, be anti-Semitic? 
How's it possible for Christians to be anti-Semitic? I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And we're going to be, think we're better than the Jews or something. Uh, gospel is power of God for salvation. Everyone who believes in the Jew first, logically, because Jesus is a Jew, salvation is of the Jews, but also to the Greek, and he means Gentile in that context, right? So that includes us, and that's the good part. The Jewish Messiah is the Savior of the world. That's a mind-blowing thing. Um, and we know that from other direct didactic statements. John 3.16 comes to mind, right, Fran? For God the Father loved the world with religious and irreligious people, good people, bad people, rich people, poor people, black people, white people, um, Jewish people, Gentile people, that he gave his only son as the active agent of salvation. Everything that Derek has ever done or ever will do that could keep him out of heaven, Jesus Christ died for on the cross. And then he rose again from the dead, not just uh, to prove he could do it, but to validate the saving power of his death. And everyone who trusts in him, saving faith is active, receptive trust, not just mental assent to facts, right? Um, uh, that whosoever believes in him shall not, future tense, perish in the lake of fire, but has present tense, eternal life. So that's a, we're, we're used to that. We've got 2,000 years of church history. It's not a mind-blowing thing to think the Jewish Messiah saved the world, but this was a mind-blowing, paradigm-breaking thing, especially in the first century Jewish mind. And you see the early church even grapple with it for 15 chapters in Acts. And then I'll close with this. You know, I, I do this almost every year. I don't see this much anymore, but when I grew up, Andy Williams had this Christmas special. Bing Crosby had a Christmas special. I mean... Um, Flip Wilson had a Christmas special. Everybody had a Christmas special. And after they sang and danced and did skits that went over a lot better than some of the skits I'm thinking about recently, uh, they'd always they'd lower the lights, and Andy Williams, the amazing theologian, would say, we've had a lot of fun on this show, and we hope you folks enjoyed it as much as we enjoyed doing it for you. Uh, he'd look at the producer like, okay, I'll say it if you want me to. But let's all remember the real meaning of Christmas, which is love everybody, or peace on earth, or be generous. And those are great things. I'm very much for peace on earth. I'm very much for loving everybody, very much for gifts, giving and receiving. But the real meaning of Christmas is the babe in that manger was and is the God-man Savior. That's the real meaning of Christmas. It's the incarnation. Second person of the Trinity takes on humanity without ceasing to be deity, one person, two natures, so that he could be the perfect mediator. The God-man's the perfect mediator between God and man. That's the real real meaning of Christmas. And I think a passage like this one, consistent with all that, is emphasizing the uniqueness and the greatness of Jesus Christ. Okay? Nobody's going to miss this if they want it. The guys 800 miles away in a totally pagan culture get it. The guys six miles away running the temple don't get it. God will get the information to seeking hearts, and other people will distort it, even if they know it. So beware. Um, but uh, be alerted to the focus of Christmas, which is Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this amazing account of an amazing series of events, and, and let it um, catalyze in us a growing awe and appreciation for the one who loved us, died for us, rose again, gives eternal life to all who believe, and who's going to personally not only bring us into his presence when we pass, but it's going to resurrect our bodies in connection with the end times and bring in this amazing millennial kingdom followed by a perfect eternal state where there'll be no death, 
or tears or mourning or, or pain or grieving anymore. Uh, many of us this time of year think about uh, people and events that have been traumatic. And I want to pray that you would uh, strengthen us as we deal with some of these, uh, these losses, uh, temper our grief when we realize these things are temporary. They're, 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 they're painful, but they're temporary. Help us to visualize all you have in store for all who have received your son, including so many that we miss uh, this Christmas season. Um, give us the grace to draw near to you, even when we don't understand exactly what's going on, and to be faithful to what we do understand, just like Mary and Joseph. They didn't exactly understand what the next step was. They just stayed where they were till they got undeniable instructions to move on. So let that be a, a lesson to all of us. Uh, I pray for all of us as believers in Christ, those of us who have trusted in Him, that we put Christ in Christmas in a way that our families and friends would see it undeniably. And I pray for anyone here this morning who not, has never, from the depth of their heart, said, hey, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I've broken your rules. I break my own rules at my worst. I need a Savior, and I want you to save me. I believe you're the Son of God. I believe you died for my sins on the cross, and you rose again from the dead, and I'm entrusting myself and my, my eternal destiny to you. I receive you as my Savior, and now as a believer, I want to honor you as my Lord. Uh, motivate, convict, and draw anyone in this room this morning who's not done that, that you might be glorified by giving them that greatest gift. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.